If you've got a Bible, if you would, just turn to the Gospel of John. And uh, we're going to pick up in chapter 15 of the Gospel of John. Just to catch everybody up, we have been, uh, we've taken some time over the last several weeks to talk about this idea, this reality, that uh, we are family. And, uh, and so we, uh, back at the end of September, our church celebrated 10 years together as a church community, as a family, and uh, it, it was at that time that we felt very strongly that it was time for a name change. And so we were previously relevant church, and uh, starting on uh, at the end of September, we became family church. We felt like it, it better encapsulated who and what we are and uh, what we're about. And so we have taken several weeks to really delve into this idea, uh, this very spiritual idea that we are the family of God and uh, what that means, what that looks like. And so the last couple of weeks here, uh, we're going to get very, very practical, as practical as we can get. And so um, last week, we spent some time talking about uh, the, the last evening that Jesus spent here uh, with his community, with his friends, with his family. And uh, it's a night that we call Monday, Thursday. Uh, in the uh, Holy Week leading up to Easter. And uh, Monday comes from the Latin phrase mandatum, which means uh, it's where we get the word mandate or mandatory. It is, uh, it's a command. And so it's the evening in which Jesus gives his command, the great command, and uh, to love others as he loves us. And, uh, and a lot happens in this evening. And uh, we talked about quite a bit of it last week. I want to stick with this night and talk about one other detail. It is sort of a, a metaphor that Jesus shares. It's very well known, and uh, I think it speaks so clearly to who and what we are as the family of faith. But if I can turn your attention to John chapter 15, and uh, we're just going to read the first um, 17 verses, but I'll, I'll real quick. And so this is what it says, starting verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so it may bear uh, more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples, just as the Father has loved me, I've also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments, and uh, abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than, uh, than one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, 
if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all the things that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So, what, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. This I command you, that you love one another. Um, so Jesus ends the previous chapter, chapter 14. Uh, the last thing that he says before he goes into this kind of word picture metaphor is he, he tells his disciples, hey guys, let's get up and let's go from here. So they're in the upper room. Uh, they have received communion, the Lord's Supper, together. Uh, they, Jesus knelt down and washed the disciples' feet. And uh, it was a very intimate setting, private, uh, hidden away from the chaos, uh, all that was going on in this broken, messed up world. Jesus took time with his family to talk about what's important. And really, this whole time, what he's doing is he is he's encouraging them how to carry on the family of faith, how to carry on what he is the work he's been doing for the last three plus years. This is how I want you to to keep this going, to keep this moving forward. And so then he says, guys, let's get up and let's go. And I think that's appropriate because I think this conversation he goes into, this metaphor, this this story about the vine and the branches is how we get up and we go. This is how we carry on the mission. This is, this is really the practical, uh, the, the, this is the mandatum. This is, the, this is how to, this is, this is the to-do list. So when Jesus says, get up, let's get up and go, he's saying, this is how we go. Go into all the world, make disciples. This is how we go into all the world, preach the gospel. This is, this is the, the picture that we're supposed to abide by. So, so he gets up. And they get going, and, uh, and most likely, uh, they're, they're, they're heading towards the Mount of Olives, and, and so they are certainly walking past lots and lots of olive trees. Uh, they, they were ubiquitous at this, in this region at this time. Uh, this was, uh, I'm, I'm sure they passed plenty. And uh, it, it, it is a strong possibility that in this region, they might have also physically passed a vineyard or two. So maybe even more than just some metaphor, of course they're familiar with, with the, um, the picture that he's painting, but, but maybe even more than that, they could have possibly passed. It might have been like an object lesson, like pointing. Uh, but they're traveling up to the Mount of Olives. This is, this is the, uh, obviously where Jesus is going to be. Uh, they're going towards the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is going to be uh, betrayed and arrested. And, and as they walked, uh, Jesus shares this, this story, this metaphor. And he, and he starts off by saying, I am the true vine. And the word true is very important to focus in on. Uh, I'm the true vine. And, and I believe he brings up the word true because there's lots of alternatives. There's lots of other directions and in, in, and alternatives that we can choose to abide in, to connect ourselves to, to make our source. And I think this actually has a deeper meaning to these gentlemen that he's walking with because historically the Old Testament talks about Israel, 
the nation of Israel as being the, uh, the vineyard of God. And so uh, it's, it's almost like he's referring back to their, their family lineage, their history, their identity. In fact, I believe it's Isaiah 5 where uh, it talks about this being, Israel being the vineyard of God, and, and, and the, the prophet Isaiah declares that you're not bearing good fruit anymore. You're not bearing the fruit that you're supposed to be bearing. And so uh, this, is, this is a consideration of how to bear good fruit versus bearing no fruit or even bad fruit. So Jesus is saying this is where you need to be connected. Uh, you've been connected to other things. You've been connected to other priorities. You've been connected to other uh, people. You've been connected to other sources of life. Your identity has been somewhere else. But I'm bringing you back home. I'm bringing you to the source, the true vine. This is where life is. And so Jesus is encouraging them, you're now connected to me directly and because you're connected to me directly, you're going to bear tons of fruit and fruit that will remain forever. I'm the true source. He, he is saying that I'm the true vine. I'm the true source. I am, I am the true. I'm where the, the source of purpose and fulfillment and meaning. All that is found solely in your connection with me. If you want true, true significance in your life, if you want true fulfillment, there's only one place you're going to find that, and that is in Christ. There, there's countless other things smaller than Jesus that, that we ask to be our source, that we ask to bring fulfillment and purpose, and uh, it, it begins to look like a wild goose chase. And uh, we're, we're all subject to this in our modern culture uh, where you've got media and all of culture yelling at the top of its lungs, this is how you make your life count. This is how you bring meaning and significance to your life. If you just buy this, if you just owned this, if you just do this, if you're just married with 2.5 kids, if you just drive one of these, if you, if you just have accomplished this, if you, if you just do CrossFit and hit tires with a hammer, then you will finally find significance. And I'm not talking about a CrossFit. We have a CrossFit gym right a couple doors down, and they are very impressive. Running by my building while I sit here and eat horrible for me food. It makes me feel very convicted. <laughs> Uh, you, there's always, you know, I mean, you've been around, you know that, that everything, every billboard you see is like, what are you doing with your life? Step it up. Find some meaning in this. And Jesus is saying, guys, it, it, it's all for nothing. In fact, he says it this way. And I, I think, I don't know that we really lean into the power and the significance of what's being said here. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The word nothing there, if you go to the original word, it means Jack Diddley. Or if you're French, Jacques Diddley. <laughs> Je parle français. Uh, it means nothing. Zero. Nada. Apart from me. So the question is, well, Jesus, 
that's not entirely true, is it? Uh, I'm a self-made person, and, and I've accomplished many things, and I've done this, and I've done that. And so it, factually, is that true? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, I think this is the heart of what he's saying. Apart from me, nothing that we do truly bears the kind of fruit that we're talking about. Uh, there is a, a book of the Bible that is historically, it is famously depressing. Uh, it is the saddest book in the whole book. Yes, that's exactly what I meant to say. <laughs> it is the saddest book in the whole book. It is uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, which uh, if you have a read your Bible in a year plan, if you're like me, you're just like, eh, we'll just skip over that one. One, two, skip a few. Uh, it's that one in, in, in Numbers and Leviticus. Oh, help me, Jesus. And so, but you get to Ecclesiastes, you're like, oh man, oh, you better be really happy drinking a lot of coffee, getting through that thing. Uh, it's sad. And historically, it's written by, believed to be written by uh, King Solomon, the wisest and wealthiest humans ever walked the face of the earth, son of David and Bathsheba. And so he writes this and documents this. And, and really, the purpose of Ecclesiastes is, is really powerful. And I've preached through Ecclesiastes, and uh, I used to hate it and dread it. And, and to me, it's, now it's one of the most beautiful books because what it captures is this. The meaning of life, if God doesn't give life meaning. What is the meaning of life if God never gives our life meaning? So remove God from the picture. And I am me, on my own, trying to make this life count, trying to make my life significant. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. And uh, I'd like to go there just for a minute. And and the reason I'm I'm taking this there is because I think it does kind of capture um, exactly what Jesus is saying by when he says that apart from me you can do nothing. Here is a, a really clear picture of that. And so this is Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And uh, I'll just read it if you don't want to go over there. Um, but I'll just read a few verses here. Chapter 2, verses, verses 1 through 6. This is, again, King Solomon. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses, I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees, I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. If you skip down to verse 10, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. In other words, I I did it all. I did not restrain my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, all that I had done, and this was my reward for all my labor. So I considered all my activities which my, hat, my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was futility in striving after the wind, and there was no benefit under the sun. Um, 
it's, it's a powerful book, if read rightly, and uh, it's sobering. And I, I know that uh, when I was young, there is a, 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 a tenacity, a tendency to um, really want to make your own mistakes. And uh, the, the older folks in our lives, our parents, mentors, teachers, they try to step in and say, can, can, I, just, can I just give you some advice? Don't, don't make the mistakes that I've made. Learn from my mistakes. And, and there's, some, there's a stubbornness in the young brain uh, that we, we want to make our own mistakes. We, we, we think we're the exception. We think that we know what we're doing. And then, then we kind of venture out there and, and we get some scars and some wounds and we skin our knee and we make some messes and we have some failures. And, and then hopefully, in that case, we learn from our own mistakes. Well, this is King Solomon saying, hey, can, can, let me just, I, I just want to impart some wisdom here. I, I've, I've done it all. And in whatever dream that you have in terms of career and possessions and accolades and achievements in life, um, not to boast or brag, I can say this about him, he surpassed those things. He did more. He did it bigger. He did it better. He did it brighter. Uh, he, 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 he's been there, done that. And his caution, the cautionary tale of this whole book is to say it, it doesn't pay off. There's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. There's something in our brain. If you've got a vision board or some sort of kind of dream sequence in your, in your mind, uh, I, I remember uh, as a kid, I had this aspiration to own a coffee shop. And, and, and part of it was just, I grew up in the 90s and, and grunge was going on and Seattle was like the place to be and everything was coffee and flannel and I'm still there. So anyway, I, I had much longer hair, though, and uh, listened to Pearl Jam. So I loved all that stuff. It was awesome. And I thought, owning a coffee shop, and I kind of, in my mind, I pictured it almost like uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart in, in, uh, in Casablanca, Cafe American. And I was like, I'll be, I'll be uh, uh, Rick. It'll be, it'll be cool. My dad's name is Rick. So Chris Bar Rick, son of Rick. So I'll, I'll be the cool guy that owns a coffee shop. And in my brain, I'm like, this is the coolest thing you can do. And then uh, God made a way to where I bought a coffee shop. I was 20 years old, and I owned a coffee shop. And, uh, and man, I thought I was the cat's PJs. I was like, how cool is this guy? And so I stepped out there thinking I was going to be the next Howard Schultz uh, Starbucks story. And I'm like, you better get on the ground floor, because this is going to be something else. And then about six months into it, my prayer was, it looked like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> it was a brand new, it was, it was a level of stress and frustration that I had never, ever, ever known. And now to this day, I'm, I'm still a little jaded. People are like, I got a business idea. I'm like, oh, don't do it, man. <laughs> Just please save yourself. The heartache. Go work for somebody. Let them pay you. Uh, there's something about a guaranteed paycheck that is just really uh, underrated. But um, anyway, God spared me, and I'm still kicking. And uh, I don't know that that coffee shop's still kicking, but I am. The, the people I bought it from had, were very Christian, and they had a great name for it, Holy Grounds. <laughs> and sh- I should have known right there. <laughs> the writing was on the roll. This is, this is not a good idea. 
That's the name I should have changed, right? Anyway. <laughs> uh, so I, I, uh, I had a dream, got there, and guess what? I was the same miserable cynic I was before I bought it. Where, there's, an old, there's an old wise saying, wherever you go, there you are. Uh, if you think that me plus that will then be happy, it's, it's misleading. It's an empty promise. And, and the word vanity or futility comes up in, in the book of Ecclesiastes over and over and over. Uh, Solomon paints all these, uh, a myriad of pictures. And he says, here's the dream sequence. And then at the end of that dream sequence, it's all vanity. It's all empty. It is pointless. I love the, the, the word picture he uses here. It's like chasing after the wind. This, this captures exactly what Jesus is saying. Apart from me, apart from me leading and fulfilling you, all your endeavors are empty. And I, I think that whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, whether you're inside the faith, outside the faith, whatever your work, walk of life and your experiences are, all of us, every semen, single human being who has a, a pulse, who has a heart in their chest, wants their lives to count. Everybody wants meaning, significance, and fulfillment. Everybody. That is 100% of the population wants their lives to matter, to count. They don't just want to be one of. They want to be the most significant individual they can possibly be. And Jesus is speaking to that craving. He's not glossing over it. He's speaking directly to it. He knows that. He knows that because He created you. He, he made you. And there is a, a craving that He is very well aware of because He designed you with it in there. To desire something bigger, something greater, something that fulfills, something that causes us to know that our lives have meaning and purpose. There, there is a homing beacon that is installed in all of us. And it longs for home. And home is in Christ. It's with Jesus. I know we think of home as being a, an address, a destination. We are designed to crave home in a person. We are His. And He is ours. And our home is found in Him. Nestled. There, there's a... Um, uh, there's, a, there's a statement that Jesus makes that, that is very cryptic. He says, you know, birds have their nests, fox have their, uh, their dens, and, uh, and so, the, 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 but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There is a, uh, there's a, a very interesting statement there. I, it, it means I don't have a home. But then when the Bible says that Jesus gave up his spirit, for us, he rested his head. He found home. He found home in sacrificing everything for us. Where does Jesus find his home? In giving everything for you. And where do we find our home? In, in embracing everything that Jesus has done for me. It is mutually beneficial. 
We, we live a religious sensibility. We live in religious times and a religious world. And the, the standard religious pursuit is that I have to do everything I can for Jesus so that He can rest in all the good works that I've done for Him. And that is exactly backwards. Let me, let me say this. The, the secret of the, the Christian life is not what we do for Jesus. It's what Jesus has done for us. So Jesus finds His home in doing for you. You find your home in receiving what He's done, not the other way around. So Jesus rattles off many, many, many uh, verbs here. Many commands. Many directives. Many imperatives. He says over and over and over, this is what you have to do. He gives many, many imperatives over and over and over. In fact, the same one over and over and over in this word picture, in this analogy. He says over and over and over, you got to do this. And the word he encourages us to do is to abide. And it's almost like he's saying, no, seriously, abide. No, really, abide. What does that mean? It means to live. It means to know your home and remain there. Stay with Him where you belong. Abide in Him. Uh, I love C.S. Lewis, which is, who is just obviously a, a legend, um, a hero of the faith, said this, and this is quite beautiful, God can't give us peace and happiness apart from Himself because there is no such thing. There is no such thing. Uh, there is a, um, a, a Scripture that talks about that this is all shadows. This is all just empty, kind of vacant shadows on earth. The substance belongs to Christ. That's where the true substance is. And we would probably default to the opposite being true, that this is the substance, and then there's this ethereal kind of uh, something else out there. And that's not right. This is, these are shadows. And what, what's happening is these shadows are trying to tell you how to find substance. The world's trying to tell you how to find meaning and substance. I love what the angel says at the, at the tomb. Why do you search for the living among the dead? That is a great question for all of us. This is a broken, fallen world. Why would we ever let that define us? Or try to lead us and guide us? So, there's a lot of arguments happening as we speak in this world. There's lots of divisiveness and and, and arguments and right fighting and people arguing their case and trying to tell people where they're wrong, where they missed it, where they're they're just boneheaded and have no nothing. But most all of these arguments are over temporal, temporary, silly things that at the end of the day, they don't matter. As we abide in the true vine, there's something that's beautiful that happens that can't happen otherwise. Jesus puts it this way, we bear much fruit, fruit that remains. We 
we bear fruit for God. And it just so happens that the, the fruit that we bear for God, which glorifies God, also has the intention of benefiting others. The, the fruit that we bear actually benefits other people. Um, what is this fruit? Galatians 5 gives us this very convenient list of what this fruit is that, that Jesus is mentioning. is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's the fruits of the Spirit. And if you think about these, these are, these are qualities that benefit us. If you have these qualities, let's take joy for, for an example. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy brings strength. Joy brings uh, an exuberance to life where you, if you're enjoying life, you are, you're in a strong place. If you have no joy, if you're joyless and you're just underneath the weight of life, then, then it is crushing, is debilitating, and we feel weak. But not only do these qualities benefit us, they benefit the people around us. In fact, these are designed to build up and encourage and help the people around us. All these qualities are meant to benefit the world around us. And abiding in the true vine means being connected to the source, to the vine, but it also means being interconnected in, 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 in close proximity with the other branches. I, the statement is, I'm the vine, singular, one source. You are the branches, many together. All this is intentional, and what's this leading to? I, I think there's a lot of parallels that we find, obviously throughout Scripture, but certainly in these pivotal moments. There's a, there's a miracle that, that is documented as Jesus' first miracle. And it happens at a wedding. And at this wedding, the wedding party, the waiters, they realize we're, we're experiencing some tragedy here. We're out of wine. Alert the authorities. This is an amber alert. Or a rosé alert. <laughs> wine jokes. Uh, this is a very... This is, a, this is serious. So Jesus' mom steps in says, I have the solution here. My son's Jesus. Perhaps you've heard of him. Virgin birth. Holy Spirit conceived. He's going to do great things. Son of God. Saving all of you. Jesus, come make wine. <laughs> it's such a silly thing. Uh, and Jesus, I love this about Jesus, because he's fully man, right? I can almost, Mom... He does that move, right? It's not my time yet. So what does he do? He takes water that was used historically for purification. This is the water you this is the cleanest water they got. This water was used for purification such as washing one's hands, maybe even one's feet. He takes that six stone pots which represents man, six represents us. He takes us 
takes the water of the word and he transforms it on the inside of us and it becomes something that is refreshingly different for other people, that is something that is craved, that is sought after, the good stuff. The good wine. Where the wedding party was like, normally you, you, you do the good stuff, the expensive stuff in the beginning, and then everyone, everybody in the club's getting tipsy, and then on the back end, you get the cardboard dough out, and then, you know, whatever. The stuff you, you got at the Quickie Mart. You just bring that in. But you save the good stuff to last, which is a, a, a picture, again, of the, of the new covenant, which is way bigger and better than the old covenant, right? But look at this. This is, this is cleansing water wine. Jesus gets in the upper room. What does he say? It is my time. My time has come. He cl- uses the water to cleanse their feet. They sit at the table and they share the wine. Then we get this word picture. And Jesus is talking about vineyards, which they understand. And he says, guys, when you're not bearing fruit, there's a problem. If you're connected to the vine, if you're not an independent agent trying to make your life significant on your own, I got this, don't need Jesus, don't need community, I'm busy, I'm doing my own thing. It, it, you're, you're a stick, right? But if you're grafted in the vine, if you're part of what Jesus is doing, if he's your source and you're not bearing fruit, something's up. And he says two things. He says, if you're not bearing fruit, I will take you away. Sounds very dramatic. And it's, it's a scary thought. Takes me away where? Well, the word here is Iro. The original word here is Iro, which means to lift up. So when it says he will take us away, it means he will lift us up. And what does that mean? If you're not bearing fruit, if the branch isn't bearing fruit, probably the branch in all likelihood is touching the ground. It's in the soil. It's in the dirt. And so a vine dresser would take that branch and lift it back up and put it on the trellis, which amazingly, oftentimes looks like a cross, but he would take us and lift us back up and almost like he's reminding us that we are saved, reminding us that we are forgiven, reminding us of who we are. The Holy Spirit comes to convict, but that doesn't mean to rub our nose in our messes. The Bible says the Holy Spirit comes to convict the believers of their righteousness, reminds us of who we are in Christ. So the old Adam, his name Adam comes from Adamah, which means soil. From dust we came to dust will return. This is the broken, frail humanity. This is, the, this is why Jesus said, I, you're clean already, but I need to wash your feet because as you walk around in this broken, fallen world, you pick up some dust. You pick up the offenses and the aggravations and the angers and the frustrations of this world. And that stuff gets in the way of bearing fruit. It's hard to bear fruit when you're bitter. Because you bear bitter fruit, if any. It's hard to bear fruit when you're really closed in on yourself, cynical towards the world, and others, and you close in on yourself, and it doesn't mean you're not in Christ, it just means that you, you've, you've gotten a little dusty. So Jesus lifts us up, and even in the same story, Jesus reminds us, I've already cleaned you, 
My, my words have, my, the gospel has already purified you. But sometimes we just need to be reminded. So here we have, again, this word picture that's, that's kind of taking us back even to Jesus washing our feet in the upper room. Then he says, if you're also, if, if something's going on, maybe you've been lifting up, but there's some, still some issues in bearing fruit, I will prune you. It's the 30, 60, 100 fold thing. You might be bearing a little bit of fruit, but you could be going further. And so he starts pruning us. Now, this is one of my favorite things. Not at all. To be pruned. For God to love us enough to, to cut away those areas of offense, to cut away those areas of bitterness, to cut away those areas that are keeping us from living in a fruitful place where we're looking outward. Maybe it's those selfish aspects of our life where we're just closed off and turned in on ourselves. The branches are growing inward, and Jesus is like, yeah, let's, 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 let's let you loose to where you can actually benefit others. Now, if you're going to get some good wine, you need all these branches bearing fruit. Because the wine of all these branches together is the good stuff. So it's the fruit of all of our lives collectively that Jesus uses to show. Now, the Bible says that the world will know us because of our love. The world will know us, and another scripture says the world will know us because of our, our fruit. They'll know us by our fruit. Which one is it? Our love or our fruit? Same Z's. It's the same thing. The world's going to know us by the fruit that we bear. If we're bearing much fruit, if we love and care about each other, we love and care about others. I saw this the other day on, on Facebook or something. The, the unbelievers don't read the Bible, they read you. There's a beautiful statement in, in Thessalonians. I think th- first Thessalonians, somewhere around 3.12 or something like that. It says, may the master fill you with so much love that it splashes on those around you. Now we're back to being containers and vessels of this amazing love. This is all a product of being together in Christ. Those two things, is, is being in Christ, abiding in the vine, is yes, absolutely, first and foremost. But it is also being together in Christ. Us. We are family in this thing. Towards the end of the journey, Jesus and his disciples are about to enter the, uh, the garden of Gethsemane, and, and Jesus stops, and he says, guys, I, I need to pray, and I want to share this prayer as we begin to wrap up, and I, this is obviously one of Jesus' last final prayers, and it really it really demonstrates the priority of his life, his ministry, his heart, and his desire for us going forward. This is what he prays. This is John 17, 22 through 26. The glory, with, the glory that you've given me, I, I've given it to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they might become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and then love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, 
that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even, even though the world does not know you, I know you. In these that, that you have sent me, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. There is a, a desire that is expressed here that I don't think is a detour from the word picture that he just gave to the disciples. Uh, we, when we first moved into a, a home, my childhood home here in Chattanooga, uh, there was a, a little bitty uh, grapevine. And I held my ear up to it just to see if I could hear something through the grapevine. Ha! <laughs> uh, so, but there was, a, and my dad quickly got rid of that because it was a nuisance. But anyway... If you look at a grapevine, if you've ever seen one or pictures of them, there is, there is the vine, and, and then there's countless branches. And they're so intertwined. It's unlike a tree. It's so intertwined that you can't tell where one thing starts and the other, and the other stops. It is intrinsically tied together. It is wrapped up in itself. This, this back and forth that Jesus is, is having, where he's like, I'm in you, you're in me, and he's in me, and we're in... It, it's almost like creating this, this, this tying together to where you can't, you can't move me and not move Jesus. You can't move Jesus and not move me. And, and we're in the Father, and there's just this wrapped up, tied up, we're in this, we are one. And Jesus' prayer is that we the family of faith would be that. Would be so tied up in each other's lives that we are together in this. That your fruitfulness is necessary for my life. And my fruitfulness is necessary for your life. Now, uh, just a quick aside, what that means is we've also got to be patient through each other's unfruitfulness. We've got to trust that God knows what He's doing when He's in the process of lifting up or even pruning someone's life and we get impatient. And we get... Now, here's two things to keep in mind. A, you can't fake fruit. You can't tape fruit to the tree. It's not, that's not it. You can't fake fruit. It's from Christ or it's not there. And two, you can't fast forward fruit. So we all benefit in the bearing of fruit on our lives, but you can't fake it and you can't fast forward it. I think this is why the very first adjective given to the, the idea, the thought of love in 1 Corinthians 13, is love is patient. To be patient with each other in 2022 might be the most difficult thing that we're talking about today. It is excruciating. Have you ever pulled up to a drive-thru and you saw two cars and you're like, no, I'll starve. Unless it's Chick-fil-A. You're like, that's 30 seconds. 
And then, and then you throw feelings and our situation and everything in the mix. It, it's, it's difficult to be patient. It's easier to just leave the vine. This is more trouble than it's worth. You know what? You know who's really nice to me? Me. <laughs> you know who thinks about me all the time? Me. These guys, not so much. So I'm going to take my stickiness on the road. I get it. I really do. I, there's been times that I've wanted to quit myself. I'm the founder of this church, and I've wanted to bail on it. <laughs> it's difficult. It is, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. There's a, uh, a lovely quote that I'll wrap up with here. It's from a British priest and author uh, by the name of Frank Colquhoun. And uh, I love this. I've, I've, I've had this in, in a little place on my computer for years and years and years and refer back to it. But this is what he says. The fellowship of the church is part of God's good news to men. It imparts to, uh, to the gospel one of its most thrilling notes that when Christ saves a man, He not only saves him from his sin, He saves him from his solitude. It is a two-part salvation. It is not just from your sin, but it is from your solitude. The book of Psalms says that God sets the isolated into family. This is... This is the heart of Jesus. Make them one. Bring them together. We over me. That we could be together in this endeavor even when it's tough. Even when it's difficult. Even when the storms are are raging and life is tough. The winds are blowing. It is so difficult. But having done all to stand. Having done all to remain. Remain. Stand. Abide. At all costs to abide, to say, I'm, I'm home and I'm not leaving. That's the heart of Christ. And He gives grace for that. He gives grace through the tough seasons. And I'll be honest with you, through the toughest seasons of my life, which there's been a few, I, at the other end of it, not necessarily in it, but the other end of it, I always have the same feeling. Thank God I went through that because I'm a better me because of that. You know, in just a theological point of view, God doesn't create all the bad things that happen to us. This is a broken, fallen world. The Bible says every good gift is from heaven, from the Father above. This is not, this world is, it brings brokenness. It breeds it. It cultivates it. God doesn't necessarily bring all that to our life, but He certainly uses it. He works it out for good because that's who He is. So as we, we go through the pruning, as we go through the, the difficult aspects of life and maybe the fertilizing, if you will, of life, there's something beautiful at the other side of it that we become better. We become more. We become something quite beautiful that this world needs and we become that together.